Well, we're seeing to coming close to the end. We're going through Matthew for I think close to three years now. Okay, last week we talked about uh, Matthew 27, verses 15 to 31. Let's do a little review of that real quick. What do you remember from last week? What uh, what did I say later on that he heard from someone else that would have reaffirmed that to him? Put a little fear in his heart, didn't it? What else you remember from last week? Yes. That's right. Very good. What does the fear of man bring, Malachi? Fear man is a. Remember that verse? No, fear of man is a snare. It's a trap. The Bible says. We talked about that verse last week, Proverbs 29 25. What else did you remember from last week? Jesus was uh, falsely charged with sedition, and uh, Pilate knew that it was a false charge, and uh, he also knew that uh, Barabbas was guilty of sedition. Proven that he was guilty of sedition and he knew it, and he still offered to release Barabbas, knowing he was guilty of sedition and knowing Jesus was not, uh, and that was an unlawful thing for even him to offer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the accusing of sedition of Jesus was done by the religious leaders, mm-hmm. and so if that was really their concern, would they wanted Barabbas released to them? Yeah. Not being in front of sinners, yes. If he, if he would release Jesus, but Barabbas, I'm sure Caesar probably wouldn't want him released either. <clears throat> now, what did they say about their own law? Is, is Barabbas' crimes deserving of death as well? He was a murderer, right? So were they really concerned about that? They weren't concerned about man's law or their or God's law. They're concerned about their own wicked hearts. That's it. That's all they were concerned about. What else from last week? Right. 
Amen. Because perfect love casts out all fear. Amen. And Jesus was perfect in love. Sheep. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the answer, I think it was, I think it was from Luke, wasn't it? The answer from Luke when he went off to uh, see Oh, uh, Herod? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's Luke. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But mocking and scoffing like they mocked and scoffed Jesus, but he wasn't worthy of mocking and scoffing. He did nothing wrong to deserve that. That's good. That's Luke 23, 6 through 12. That part right there. Okay. All right, anything else? Okay, today we're going to read, starting in verse 32 and read through verse 56. It's a good chunk of scripture, but I think it all goes along together. So we're going to discuss it all today. Starting in verse 32. Now as they came out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name, him they compelled to bear his cross. And when they had come to a place called Golgotha, that is to say, place of a skull, they gave him sour wine mingled with gall to drink. But when he had tasted it, he would not drink. Then they crucified him, and divided his garments, casting lots, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Sitting down, they kept watch over him there. And they put up over his head the accusation written against him, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. And two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and the other on the left. And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, You who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise, the chief priests also, mocking with the scribes and elders, said, He saved others, himself he could not save. If he is the King of the Israel, let him, not, let him now come down from the cross and we will believe him. He trusted in God, let him deliver him now, if he will have him. For he said, I am the Son of God. Even the robbers who were crucified with him reviled him with the same thing. Now from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness over all the land. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood there, when they heard that, said, This man is calling for Elijah. <clears throat> Immediately one of them ran uh, and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed, and offered it to him to drink. The rest said, Let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Then, behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth quaked, and the rocks were split. And the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went to the holy city and appeared to many. So when centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they feared greatly, saying, Truly, this was the Son of God. And many women who followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, were there looking on from afar, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. <clears throat> okay, so in verse 32, we see 
This man from Cyrene. And Cyrene is a, it's a port city in North Africa in the country of Libya, which is right next to Egypt. Okay? So a pretty important city. Lots of Jewish people there. And obviously he was in town for the Passover. And um, when it comes to, he said he compelled him to bear his cross. Now, we see in, um, let's go to Luke twenty three twenty six for a second here. Do some harmonization here. Luke twenty three twenty six. <clears throat> it says, Now as they led Jesus away, they laid hold of a certain man, Simon, a Cyrenian, who was coming from the country. And on him they laid the cross that he may bear it after Jesus. Okay, so uh, Matthew says that Simon bore it. doesn't say anything about Jesus bearing it. This says he bore it after Jesus. And then John 19 and verse 17. Let's turn there for a second here. Uh, 19 and verse 17 it says, uh, and Jesus, that's who he is referring to there, bearing his cross, went out to a place, went out to a place called the place of a skull, which is in Hebrew called Golgotha. So John doesn't mention uh, Simon. Uh, Luke uh, says that Simon bore it after Jesus, and Matthew just mentions Simon. So Jesus bore it for a period of time, at least. Um, and then, the, going back to Luke for a second here, that word after, bore, he might bear it after Jesus, doesn't necessarily mean chronologically bore it after Jesus. The word after there could also mean back rear of an object. So it could be they were bearing it at the same time for the last part of it. Okay, But Jesus did bear it for him by himself for a period of time. So whether you, whether you interpret verse 26 or Luke 23, meaning that you know Jesus let him take over for him, or that he was helping him with it to the very end, makes no difference. That's how you're going to harmonize these three accounts here. And that Simon, Jesus did bear it for himself, by himself, for a period of time, and Simon either came along and took over for him, or simply helped him uh, with it until the end. <clears throat> so he bore it with him. Um, and then in, um, more information here about, about Simon the Cyrene. Uh, it says in Mark 15, it mentions two of his sons here, which is kind of interesting. Mark 15, verse 21 <clears throat> said the Romans compelled a certain man, Simon, I say, Renian, the father of Alexander and Rufus, as he was coming out of the country and passing by to bear his cross. So he was just passing by, but it mentions Alexander and Rufus. Now, I'm sure Alexander appears many times, but Rufus is a really interesting name, and it only appears one other time that I'm aware of in Scripture, and it's Romans 16:13, and he's called a disciple. He's a disciple uh, of Jesus. Uh, and someone who Paul says to greet. And so it's possible, you know, this is just conjecture at this point in time, but it's possible that Romans 16, 13 is referring to the same Rufus that Mark 15, 21 is. I would assume the reason why Mark is mentioning these two young men who are, are the, the, the sons of Simon is that they became disciples. And I can imagine Simon himself became a disciple. It wouldn't surprise me one bit. Okay, so going back to Matthew 27 here. <clears throat> Um, actually, I'm sorry, let's go to Luke 23 one more time here. You're going to be going back and forth, so if you want, you can keep your finger on Luke. <clears throat> uh, we have some, some more information here in Luke's Gospel. of so A message Jesus gave to people as he was walking to Golgotha. 
says in verse 27, And a great multitude of the people followed him, and women who also mourned and lamented him. But Jesus turning to them said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For indeed the days are coming in which they will say, Blessed are the barren wombs, wombs that never bore, and breasts which never nursed. Then he'll begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For they do these things in the greenwood, will be done in the dry. I believe this is in reference to what's going to happen in AD 70, which Luke 21 talks about in very clear terms. We talked about this before in, in the fellowship. Uh, Luke 21 refers to uh, what will happen in AD 70, the destruction of Jerusalem. And we can just go there for a second here. Luke 21 and verse 20. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its destruction is near. Let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those who are in the midst of her depart, and let not those who are in the country enter her. For these are the days of vengeance, that all things which are written may be fulfilled. But woe to those who are pregnant, to those who are nursing babies in those days. For there will be great distress in the land and wrath upon this people. And they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led away captive into all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled by Gentiles until the times of Gentiles are fulfilled. And so, uh, and this is also said in Matthew 24 about the woman who are, you know, a bit better off. They had never given, uh, never been pregnant, never nursed babies. Very similar said in, in Matthew 24, which is referring to the end times, which is really just can be said about any time when there is tribulation. So it's great tribulation. Uh, you're better off not being pregnant because it makes it more difficult for you. You're better off not nursing babies that makes it more difficult for you. Uh, so even though Jesus, uh, you know, what he's going through is deserving of weeping, deserving of mourning over, he's saying, listen, don't worry about me. You need to worry about yourselves. And hopefully these ones who were weeping for him were actually weeping for him <clears throat> as his disciples, as his followers, and um, they would heed the Luke 21 admonition to flee to Judea when these things were to come. Hopefully they would do that. Okay, let's go back to, back to Matthew now. Matthew chapter 27. <clears throat> okay, verse 33. And when they had come to a place called Golgotha, and that's, that's the Hebrew uh, transliteration, okay? That's what the word means, place of the skull. Uh, that is to say, the place of the skull. And in, and in, uh, in Luke's gospel, uh, in Luke uh, twenty three thirty three, it uses the word Calvary. Okay, the word Calvary is a Latin transliteration of the Latin word Calvaria, which means place of the skull as well. So every once in a while, uh, you'll see this in the Bible. Like for example, Lucifer is the transliteration of the Latin word, which means um, uh, son of the morning, I believe. Uh, so we see this sometimes. You'll see the Latin words in here because people got used to it. People got used to Jerome's Latin Vulgate, and we we have songs about Calvary, and it's it's just simply the English transliteration of the the Latin word uh, Calvaria. The Greek word is cranion. Now what what English word do you think we get from that? Cranium, place of the skull. Okay. Why was it called the skull? Lots of people would say that. The hill there looks like a skull. I don't think we have any evidence of that, though. Um, it's probably called the skull because lots of people died there. It was considered outside the city, and that's where people were to die. 
Uh, there might have even been skulls there of people who were not buried, uh, who were left on the cross to be picked at by vultures, and their, their bones were still there. Uh, but we have no evidence that the place there was called the place of the skull because the mountain or the hillside was shaped like a skull. Okay, no evidence of that whatsoever that I'm aware of anyway. Okay, verse 34. Uh, then they gave him sour wine, which is vinegar. Okay, so wine becomes, when it's, it becomes sour, it'll let it sit around too long. Vinegar mixed with gall. And gall, what it does, it dulls your senses uh, so you won't even feel pain. And this is one of the reasons why Jesus rejected it. Because he was willing to receive the full pain, the full everything that he was going to receive through his sacrifice on the cross, through everything he was going through, all the sorrow, all the pain that he was due. And so he, he tasted it, but then he would not drink it. He rejected it. Okay. Uh, then they crucified him. Now in Mark's Gospel, in Mark 15, uh, verse 25, it gives us the very hour that this happened. Okay, now Matthew doesn't do it. Matthew mentions the sixth hour and the ninth hour, but does not mention the, the hour that he was crucified. In Mark fifteen twenty-five, it says, uh, verse 24, And when they crucified him, they divided his garments, casting lots for them to determine what every man should take. Now it was the third hour, and they crucified him. Now, put your, your Jewish mindset on here. The third hour means 9 a.m. from our perspective, Okay. So you count from 6 a.m. So the third hour is 9 a.m. That's the hour he was crucified at 9 a.m. Okay? And uh, let's see here. i got a note here for Luke 23. I can't remember what that was for, though. Okay, yeah, let's go to Luke 23, 34, just for a second here. There's something they mentioned that Jesus said here that no, no other gospel accounts mentioned. I want to just address it for a second. Um, sometimes I hear this from people as objections to... You know, how we should say, what we should say things. Luke 23, 34 says, Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they did not know what they do. Now, who is Jesus referring to there, do you think? Okay, anyone else? It couldn't possibly be referring to the to religious leaders, could it? Were they ignorant of the fact of who Jesus was? Yeah, I think Brother John's right. It's the Roman soldiers because they were ignorant. They had no idea who they were crucifying. Yeah, just another crucifixion to them. Now, by the end, they changed their mind. We'll see that here in a little bit. But uh, they had no idea who this was. And that is the basis of Jesus asking for Father to forgive them because they have no knowledge, no understanding. Okay? So all sin is unrighteousness. But not all sin is counted against someone if they don't have knowledge or understanding. This is another verse that proves that very clearly. That all unrighteous, it's, it's clearly sin that needs to be forgiven, but because they have no uh, knowledge of it, it can be forgiven without them repenting because they have no understanding of it. You see how that works? So you must have knowledge, you must have understanding in order to need repentance. Okay, and only until you know something to sin can you repent of it. Okay, let's go back to, uh, to Matthew 27. Uh-huh. Right, that's that's the whole reason why I asked who you think it's referring to there. It's obviously referring to the whole world. Okay? And uh, mockers will use that in the open air. We know it couldn't possibly be referring to the religious leaders. They had seen his ministry. They knew what he was doing. And Jesus uh, accused them of committing blasphemy of the Holy Spirit because they rejected his miracles time and time again. And so they didn't lack understanding. 
of who Jesus was and what he had done. But the Roman soldiers who had not seen Jesus' ministry, they lacked understanding, they lacked knowledge of what Jesus had done. So they're definitely not referring to all the world, as some would suppose, or even of everyone who was there at the cross. He's referring to those people who were there, the ones who were casting lots for his clothing. Okay, so he, go back to Matthew 27 now. Um, so they crucified him and divided his garments, casting lots, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet. And as the prophet there is David, that's Psalm 22 and verse 18. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Now, this doesn't mention which part they casted lots for, because if there's so many pieces of clothing, there were actually four soldiers, the gospel tells us, if there was four pieces of clothing, each, each one takes a piece, right? But there was one piece that they, they didn't want to divide, uh, because it was a seamless garment, it was his undergarment, uh, and they cast lots for that part. So uh, he had. So it really kind of makes sense that he had to have had this seamless garment in order for them to cast lots, and the interesting thing about that seamless garment And this is mentioned in John 19, and starting in verse 23. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts to each soldier a part. And also the tunic. Now the tunic was without seam, woven from the top in one piece. Um, So this is a seam, and this is an undergarment, by the way. So I truly believe Jesus was crucified, and he was naked. This is his undergarment, which is part of his shame that he has to endure at the cross. Uh, but the interesting thing about this this one-piece garment, this is exactly what the high priest would wear, a seamless garment. And you can find that in Exodus uh, 28, 31 through 32. Okay. Uh, interesting, though, that people would not have known that unless one... They were where Jesus was washing the disciples' feet, okay, because they saw his undergarment. And he was not intimate with any person in a sexual way, so no one else would have known him in that way, or until he was crucified. So all the time he's wearing the garments of the high priest, and really no one would have known, except for his disciples when he was washing their feet that day when he took out his outer, his outer garments and washed their feet at the Last Supper. And so he was, the, he was the high, and that's what Hebrews calls him, the great high priest of a new covenant. And of course, the covenant was was uh, done in his blood, and he was he wasn't from the Levitical priesthood because he didn't come from the tribe of Levi. He was of the the priesthood of Melchizedek, which is an unending priesthood, without beginning and without end. If you want to study more about Jesus being the great high priest, about the atonement overall, you just read through the book of Hebrews as many times as you can. And of course, you want to read Leviticus and Deuteronomy along with Hebrews so you can understand what it's talking about there. So he had this, this garment that was a high priest garment. But this is a fulfilling of prophecy, Psalm 22, verse 18. Now, some prophecies, people would argue that Jesus could fulfill himself. And we'll see one of those here in a second when he asks for a drink and he's thirsty from the cross. It'll fulfill a prophecy in Psalm 69. But this is a prophecy he has no power to fulfill, does he? He has no power to fulfill whether souls were cast lots for him or not. Uh, for, his, for his seamless garment. He has no power to decide whether they'll divide his garments among them. He had no power to decide where he was born, did he? Born in Bethlehem? He couldn't decide where he was going to be born. No, God decided that. But he had no power to decide that. And so this is one of those examples of that. 
Some people would accuse Jesus of just trying to fulfill prophecies that were written so he could try to make himself the Messiah. But he obviously could not have fulfilled this prophecy by himself. Other people were involved. So he had no control over it. Okay, verse 36. Sitting down there, they kept watch over him there. <clears throat> and they put up over his head the accusation written against him. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Now, each gospel gives a little bit different rendering of this. And of course, we know that they're not contradictory of each other. And there are no quotations in the Koine Greek. So it's not a quotation. It's simply saying uh, it could be a summary of what it said or the basic gist of what it said. But the John, John's Gospel, John 19, gives the fullest quote. Uh, and we know that the when a Gospel gives extra information, we take it all into account. Uh, so let's just read in fact, let's just read this account here in John 19, uh, starting in verse... Uh, 19, going through 24. Now, Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross, and the writing was, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. The many Jews read this title. For the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. So you have three languages it was written in, the most common languages of that day. Therefore, the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews, but he said, I am the King of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. Now, it's, there's question as to whether Pilate actually believed this or not. I mean, he seemed quite convinced when he feared, when he heard that Jesus uh, called himself the Son of God. And his wife had this dream, like Brother Vaughn was talking about a minute ago when we were doing the review. And so, this gives even more credence to that. Now, did he actually repent? I don't know if he did or not. But he at least had an intellectual knowledge, intellectual belief, possibly, that Jesus actually was the King of the Jews. That he actually was the Son of God. And he would not change it. Then the soldiers went, had Jesus had crucified. Uh, they crucified Jesus, took his garments, and made four parts to each soldier apart. We just read that part. It says, uh, then it, verse twenty-four. They said, therefore, among themselves, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, who this shall be. Then the scriptures might be fulfilled, which says, and we just read that a second ago as well. Okay, so there's extra information here about the the conversation between Pilate and the uh, Jewish leaders. Okay, go back to uh, Matthew 27 now. <clears throat> then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and another on the left, which also fulfills prophecy found in Isaiah 53.12, which says he was, uh, he found with it, let me just read it to you so I don't chop it up here. Isaiah 53.12, um, he was, it was talking about his death here. Because he he poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors. That's halfway down, verse 12 here. But he poured out his soul unto death, so it's talking about his death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, obviously talking about with it. In his death, he was numbered with the transgressors. So he died amongst actual transgressors, actual sinners. That's where he died. Uh, verse uh, 39. And those who passed by blasphemed him, blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, You who destroyed the temple and built it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Now, does Jesus not coming down from the cross prove he's not the Son of God? Does it prove that he lacks ability to come down from the cross? Just because he's not? Does it prove that he doesn't have the ability to destroy the temple, the actual temple, and build it again in three days? Which is not what he was referring to. doesn't prove that either. Likewise, the chief priests also, mocking him with the scribes and elders, said, He saved others, himself he cannot save. If he is the king of Israel, let him 
now come down from the cross and we will believe him. So, I don't know whether they're admitting this with these first three words of verse 42, he saved others, or whether they're just saying he claimed to save others. Uh, but they know, they saw the miracle, they saw the sign, they, saw, they knew he actually saved others in that sense. They knew Lazarus was risen from the dead because they wanted to kill Lazarus after he was risen from the dead. Uh, and their admission about that tells you something, I think it actually is an admission, it tells you something about them. It does not prove he cannot save himself, but he refuses to save himself because he lays his life down of his own accord, and no one can take it from him, and no one can uh, stop him from raising it up again. Verse 43, he trusted in God, let him deliver him now if he will have him. For he said, I am the Son of God. Now, does God not delivering his Son right now prove that he's not the Son of God? Prove that he doesn't love him or care for him? Not whatsoever. Even the robbers who were crucified with him reviled him with the same thing. Now, interesting thing about this is that they did revile him, but then later on, in Luke's gospel, one of them rebuked the other. Okay, now keep in mind, once again, I already showed you in Mark 15, 25, that he was crucified at the third hour. Okay? Now, verse 45, which is just after verse 44, goes to the sixth hour. So, in between his crucifixion, when he crucified at the third hour, and verse 45, there's three hours. Okay, so we see in verse 44 that both the robbers reviled him. Now, go to Luke 23. <clears throat> And we'll see that one of them later on repented of this reviling. It's obvious because he rebuked the other one for reviling him. And he had three hours to observe Christ on the cross, three hours to see what he was doing and to see how he interacted with people. And it says in verse uh, 39, that one of the criminals, criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other, answering, rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. So we have here uh, this deathbed conversion, so to speak. So it is possible for someone to repent, truly repent on their deathbed. Um, without being baptized, without being able to produce any works whatsoever, can't do any good works from the cross, hanging there, uh, they are able, and Christ told him, today you will, see, you will see me in paradise. You will be with me in paradise. And uh, it's obvious that this young man, he was reviling Jesus, shortly before he, re he, re he repented of it. It's amazing how someone could change just like that. And it tells me, if someone will revile Jesus, and they will revile us, we should never give up on those kind of people. Because sometimes those people are the, are the ones who are probably close. They're under conviction of the Holy Spirit. They're, they're, and they're letting it, they're, the filth come out of their heart. But hopefully, maybe, they'll change their mind in a matter of an hour or two or three. And truly repent to the point where Jesus would say to them, in a sense, you'll be with me in paradise. Yes, he'll say it to them as well. And in this, this scripture, I'm not going to get too much into the afterlife issue here, but um, we do know from scripture that Jesus descended into Hades. Okay, that's the Greek word. That's a, tra a transliteration of the Greek word is, is Hades in English. Okay, and we do know that he says here, today you will be with me in paradise. 
And we do know that Luke 16 talks about the rich man and Lazarus who were in Hades, where Abraham was, Abraham's bosom. Now, it's called Abraham's bosom because, you know, if, if you're, you're, you're there, you're with Abraham. You can sup with him at the table, just like John laid his head on Jesus' bosom at the table, okay? So you're in the same place as that person. You're dining with them. You're having fellowship with them. That's all it means to be in Abraham's bosom or paradise. And so this is one of the scripture scripture verses we would use as a text to prove this idea that paradise, this paradise anyway, is the same one being talked about um, as Hades or as Abraham's bosom. Okay, And that that's where we go when we die. We don't go straight to heaven or straight to hell. We go to Hades. And if you're part of Christ uh, elect, you're a part of the ones who are going to inherit the kingdom, you would go to paradise, which is the upper part of Hades or Abraham's bosom. Okay? This is one of the proof texts we would use for that. So this is happening, verses 39 uh, through 43, it's happening between the third and the sixth hour to kind of give yourself a time frame here of when this is happening. Okay, go back to Matthew 27. So that, so people would try to say, of course, that verse 44, and then go on to Luke 23, and there's a contradiction here, because one says that both of them reviled him, and even, I think, Mark says both of them reviled him, but then Luke says one of them rebuked the other. But there's plenty of time in there for them to change their mind. Okay. Uh, now when the sixth hour had come, and what time was the sixth hour? Noon. Yes, six plus six, noon. So noon, generally speaking is when the sun is at its highest, its brightest, okay? Now, from the sixth hour, and 12 to 3 we're talking about here, that's really when it's the brightest. Basically, no matter what time of the year you're at, I mean, between 12 and 3 is when it's the brightest. I mean, wintertime, usually 3 o'clock, it's usually, I guess, or summertime, usually 3 o'clock is the hottest. I mean, I, I watch the weather all the time, so we're going preaching and everything like that, and 3 o'clock seems to be the peak of the temperature when we're out preaching during the summer. Uh, but from 12 to 3, there was darkness over the whole land. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That's Hebrew there. It says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, where is that from? That's from Psalm 22.1. And Psalm 22.1 is a very clearly a messianic psalm. All the things that are said in it. I'll just quote a few of those things there. Uh, it says uh, in verse 14 of Psalm 22, I am poured out like water, all my bones are out of joint. And just to kind of give you a picture of, of that, um, they would nail them to the cross while they're still on the ground. Okay, They put the, the nails to their wrist and then both their feet together through the nails. And, and it was really stretching them out to be able to nail them to the cross. And then they would lift it up and it would go, bam, it would slam down into the hole. It would probably put their shoulders out of joint. Okay, so I think that's actually a literal thing there. Uh, my heart is like wax is melted within me. That's what Jesus died of, a broken heart. If you're here when Brother Jesse spoke about that, he talked about that quite a bit. Uh, verse six, 16, at the very end, they pierced my hands and my feet. And at the time that David wrote this, crucifixion was nowhere to be found. It was not even a form of punishment yet. Okay, verse 16. Uh, verse 17, I can count all my bones. We know later on, we're not going to get to this today, but later on they didn't break his bones like they broke the other uh, people's bones who are on the cross. They look at, they look and stare at me, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. 
So it's a Messianic Psalm 22. But people will say, my God, my God, I just I even read a commentary this morning about this. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? They said, well, the relationship between Jesus and the Father was separated. Now that will really, really mess with your doctrine of the Trinity right there. That's not even possible, friends. Not even possible. But of course, they'll, they'll, they'll quote 2 Corinthians 5, which says he became sin for us, uh, which I think is actually talking about a sin offering. But if he literally became sinful, then where does he deserve to go? Hell for all eternity. And if he literally became sinful, what does he have to do to go back into right relationship with God? He has to repent. He has to trust in who? Who is he going to trust in? Who, who is he going to flee to? He can't atone for him, his own sins. If our sins literally became his sins, he can't. He has no one to. A, we can't. I mean, here's our atonement, I guess. But who's going to atone for his sins now? How is it sit at the right hand of the Father? Now, this is simply if you read, and, and if people would just do this, this is this really leads to a lot of false doctrine, especially in Calvin. I catch them in this all the time. Was in Romans nine, but Psalm twenty-two. If you just read the next part of that in context, there you'll see what he's saying. He says, uh, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me? Was God helping him anymore? Not any longer. He helped him several times throughout his three years of ministry. People would try to stone him, throw him off a cliff, kill him, and he would always make a way for him to escape, but not this time. He was far from helping him. And so, I'm going to tell you, friends, if you will do this one thing, you will save yourself from a lot of Potential false doctrines. When you see the Old Testament quoted in the New Testament, you go back to the Old Testament and see what it says. Don't think for a second that the New Testament writers are taking the Old Testament out of context. Okay? They're not doing it. This happens with Romans 9 as well. People will take that out of context and they'll make it say whatever they want it to say. I even had one guy, James White, I, I heard his explanation of Romans 9. He said it's the apostolic interpretation of it. And that's going against what God actually originally said what the original context was? I don't think so. Okay, so we we see this cry out from the cross in his agony, in his distress, what he's crying out. It says, some of those who stood there when they heard that said, this man is calling Elijah. Immediately one of them ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, put it on a reed, and offered it to him to drink. Now, sour wine is simply, basically vinegar and water. Okay, now, now notice this time, there's no gall involved here, is there? Okay? And he actually does drink of it. Let's go to, to uh, John's Gospel. And it, there's something that happens before this that makes him run up. I mean, just because he's crying out, it shouldn't make a Roman soldier want to give him something to drink. He actually acts for something to drink. Uh, John chapter 19. Let's see here. It says, verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, the scripture might be fulfilled, he said, I thirst. So he's actually fulfilling scripture on purpose here. And that scripture is Psalm 69 and verse 21. And let's just go there for a second here. It's going to mention both times they try to give him a drink here. Psalm 69. Not going to just mention one, but both of them. Uh, verse 21, and you can read verse uh, 19 through 22. They're obviously talking about Jesus as well. But verse 21, they also gave me gall for my food. That's the first encounter, first time that happened. And for my thirst, he said, I thirst, they gave me vinegar to drink. 
Now, Jesus did ask for drink. He did say, I thirst, but did he know they weren't going to give, try to give him gall this time? So even then, if this is all God's foreknowledge of how these Roman soldiers are going to respond to Jesus saying, I thirst. Example of foreknowledge here. That's prophesied a long time ago. You know, so open theism is going to have a hard time with that one as well. Okay, so he said, I thirst, and they gave him something to drink. They gave him sour wine. Uh, and this is a normal drink, I'm, I understand, for the Roman soldiers. This is their normal drink. And uh, it's actually probably pretty good for you. So we, have a lot, we all know in this fellowship of taking vinegar, you know, some of us are more used to it than others. I, I particularly don't like it at all. Uh, but I will take it to help heal illnesses within me. You know, grudgingly take it. My wife will laugh now. I go, you know, like that when I'm when I'm done drinking it. And I, something I can't control. It just kind of happens to me. And one of these days, I'll get it on video and put it on YouTube. Uh, but uh, <laughs> well, that that was that was a voluntary one. It doesn't look as as natural. It actually is funnier. I think wasn't it any funnier in person. Oh, funnier with that garlic. Okay, yeah. What are you gonna say, brother? Well, maybe all the things they're seeing, they're beginning to have compassion for him. Uh, they're beginning to soften their heart towards him. You know, they, they've seen a lot of crucifixions. But the things they're seeing from Jesus, they haven't seen before. Father, forgive them. Uh, refusing to drink the gall, which would take away the sensitivity to the pain. Uh, darkness over the whole land in the middle of the day. You know, and the, the the sign above his head, this is the king of the Jews. And they and I'm not sure if they were there when, when Pilate was dealing with these things, but they might have heard that he was a son of God because later on later on they said, True, this was a son of God. So I don't know where who were they heard it from or they were there, but they, they heard all this, so they're probably putting us all computed in their head, and maybe they're just having some compassion on. Them. I don't I don't really know why they did, but that's a normal drink for them and they they gave him something to drink. So it fulfills Psalm sixty nine twenty one. And uh, so Jesus fulfilled his part in John 19.28, but they fulfilled their part as well, which is obviously God's foreknowledge. Uh, the rest said, let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to save him. I don't know if, there, if the people there were confusing him, saying a lie, a lie, and I thought he was shorting it for Elijah or something like that. But I know nothing in Scripture that says that Elijah is going to come save them, or even in Jewish tradition that says that. Uh, so I don't know why they think that or where they're getting it from. <clears throat> Uh, and then in, in verse 50, Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Let's go to uh, Luke 23 to get a more fuller account of what happened there. Luke 23 and uh, verse 46. And even John 19 is going to say something too. We'll get to that here in a second. But let's, do, let's read verse 46 as well. And when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, this is what he said that Matthew didn't, didn't give us. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. Now this really gives some, some oomph behind John 10.18, which says, no one takes my life. I give it up. What other person could just decide when they give up their spirit besides the Son of God? Can I decide, okay, give up my spirit, and God's going to obey my command and come and take my spirit? No, only... Only Jesus Christ can say something like this and that it would actually happen right when he says it. This is not just Jesus knowing that he's about to die. This is Jesus saying, okay, I'm ready now. Take my spirit. 
which gives uh, John 10, 18, the scripture I'm referring to here, where it says that, you know, no one takes my life. I lay it down on my own accord. What happens to this, he breathed his last. All right, go to John 19 here. And there's something else that's being said here. I want to address this for a second here. Uh, after he had taken something to drink, and before he gave up his spirit, in John 19 and verse 30, so when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. Now, there's one Greek word being translated here, and there's been lots to do, of, lots uh, lots made of this, okay? Uh, is the is the Greek word. And, you know, you may have seen these little clip art things that has Jesus with a barcode on it and it says, paid in, paid in full at the bottom. You've seen those? And this word does not mean paid in full. So if you hear a Calvinist or someone say that, that's not true. You'll find that in no Greek lexicon. What it, I'll give you all the definitions I found that it means. Uh, fulfill, bring to an end, finish, complete, carry out, accomplish. So where do they get this paid in full? I see they want to use this word paid in full because they want to support their view of the atonement. That's what they want to do with this. But where do they get that from? Well, from that period of time, when the Koine Greek was the language of that area, of that, uh, they would find on debts that had been paid the word uh, to te there. They would find that word there. And so they took that and they ran with it and said, well, that word means paid in full. But that's not what it means. Okay, it means it is finished. Christ finished his work on earth. That's all it simply means. Yeah, it's, it's and he gave up his spirit right after that. It's that. That's all it means. And obviously he did complete his work on the cross at that point in time. But they'll take, they'll even take the paid in full and run with that. It means, look, all my sins were paid for in full on the cross. All my sins past, present, and future were paid for in full on the cross. You know, he took the full, pay, full payment of God's wrath upon himself at the cross. So you see how they'll take that and just run with it. But you won't find that in any Greek lexicon, paid in full. Okay, you won't find that. And so next time someone tries to pull it on you, you have a little ammunition. Okay, So it means to fulfill, to bring to an end, to finish, to complete, to carry out, to accomplish. That's what this word means. Okay, okay let's go back to Matthew 27. Okay, so verse 50, we just read verse 50, verse 51. Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earthquake and the rocks were split. Now, the veil was a very thick piece of garment. Very thick. It had to be because it was supposed to separate the Holy of Holies from the holy place. Okay? And he only was supposed to go in there once a year on a day of atonement to make atonement for the sins of the people of Israel and anyone else who was a part of their, their group. And so just to be able to tear that period, uh, no human could do. Okay? But I want you to I want you to I want you to notice something here. It was torn from what? From who's gonna go up there and climb on top and tear it? You, you can't I mean so this proves to, it, it should prove to the people who and by the way, that was the time of the day of the sacrifices. So there would have been priests in there. Not into the Holy of Holies, but in the holy place. There would have been people in there making sacrifices when this would have happened. And so the, it's being ripped from the top to the bottom. They should have known. Without any hands, it's being ripped from top to bottom. 
That should have shown them. And what it does is, is this, this barrier between the presence of God and sinful men was now ripped open. Because now we enter in through the body of Christ's flesh. He is the veil we enter through into. Okay? Uh, so we see that there. And it proves a new covenant started. And that should have showed them something there. And so they're all seeing these things. That, I mean, obviously, not many people saw the veil torn. They've heard about it later on. But the earthquakes, the rocks were split, the graves were opened. And we talked about, Sean mentioned a second ago, why are the soldiers, look at all the things they're seeing. And they've seen probably thousands of crucifixes. They've never seen anything like this before. And then we have a very interesting thing happen in verses 52 and 53. Very interesting. It's almost like that same uh, thing we saw about the young man who ran away naked uh, a few weeks ago, you know, from, from, from Jesus' arrest. Uh, it says, the, the graves were opened... And many by the saints who had fallen asleep were raised, and coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went to the holy city and appeared to many. Now, in the Greek, it seems kind of confusing in English here, but in the Greek, I think what it's really trying to say here is that the the only things that were the only thing that happened when Christ died and gave up the spirit was the graves were opened. The saints were wrought, were risen, and came out of the graves. Both of those things happened after his resurrection. So it's not. I mean, it seems in English, it seems like he's, he's saying. The graves are open, and they're risen from the dead, and they kind of hang out in the graves a little while until Jesus rose from the grave. But I don't think that's what it's saying here. I think the Greek's actually saying that those two last two things happened at the same time after Christ rose from the grave. Okay, uh, But, of course, the graves would have had to have been opened first in order for them to come out. Now, I, I think we need to apply a very important rule of hermeneutics here, and that is where the Scripture is silent, we're going to be silent. Okay? Uh, it doesn't make much sense to speculate about who these people were, uh, about how long they lived afterwards. You know, I had I read one commentator say, well, yeah, this, these are obviously people who are Old Testament saints who are risen from the grave with their glorified bodies, and they went to heaven with Jesus afterwards. Do you see that anywhere in those two verses? Do you see that anywhere else in the scriptures? Not that I'm aware of. In fact, I would assume, this is my assumption now, this is not what it says. I would assume it's people who had probably died recently because they went into the, the city to appear to many. But if, if you're someone from long ago who no one's ever seen a picture of, you've never known them in person, how are they going to know who you are? I mean, if Abraham rose from the grave, let's just assume he's one of the ones for a second. He rose from the grave, right? And he went to the city to appear to many people. Are they going to know he's Abraham? Did they have digital cameras of Abraham back then? Did they have uh, you know Instagram to upload it to? Or a Facebook page, so, oh yeah, that's Abraham, I know it's him. They didn't have that back then. And so they would have thought it was some stranger trying to act like he was Abraham, and they wouldn't have believed him. So my assumption is that these are people who probably died recently, who were probably disciples of Jesus during those three years, and they rose from the grave the same day Jesus did, and they went to the city, because Jesus did not go into the city. He appeared only to his disciples after he rose from the grave. Several different times. Okay? And one time, the 500 at one time. But he never went into the city to prove to them he rose from the grave. Even though they knew he did, they tried to pay soldiers off for it. Uh, but I would assume these are people who, the people who were living at that time would have known. Otherwise, it wouldn't have made much impact on them. And uh, it would have been people who I think would have been followers of Jesus Christ. And they would have told him why they had risen from the grave and why Jesus had risen from the grave. And so I would assume this is similar to Lazarus' example. What happened to Lazarus? He was risen from the grave. Did Lazarus die again after that? I would assume he did. I don't think he's still alive today. And they sure he didn't get taken up to heaven. 
And so th- those are my assumptions about the situation based upon what is told in the story and using common sense. But to assume the other uh, re- things, that it, these are people who had their glorified body, and they didn't die anymore, and they went out to be with he- in heaven with Jesus after this, it's found nowhere there, and I have no reason to assume that. Yes? So would it be safe to say that these people who raised were witnesses for Christ mm-hmm. for him resurrecting, and so are the, other, the others who were in the room with his disciples? I would assume, because they, I, they're being buried here, so I'm assuming they lived in that area. In that area, they're not people who would travel to that area like other Jewish, like Simon has, Simon the Cyrene. I would assume they're from that area, and they, they, I would assume they were in the upper room with 120 in that number. But at the least, they went into the, uh, the town and appeared to many. And so, I don't think God's just raising people from the dead just to raise them from the dead. Here's the purpose behind it. And so I, I think it's a safe, safe assumption to make. We don't know for sure. I can't say it emphatically that they're among the 120, but I think it's a safe assumption to make. Um, yeah, so it's a really interesting encounter, uh, you know, account here to read about. But those are the assumptions I would make. So when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they feared greatly, saying, Truly, this was the Son of God. Interesting. A Gentile saw it. But the religious leaders refused to see it. They refused to submit themselves to it. Uh, and, and not only did that one centurion, they only mentioned one centurion in verse 54, but Luke 23 and verse 48 mentions even more people who responded it, you know, not with that exact words, but a similar response. Luke 23, 48 says, um, verse 47, so when the centurion saw that what had what happened, he glorified God, saying, certainly this was a righteous man. And the whole crowd who came together to, uh, to that site, seeing what had been done, beat their breast and returned. So many people saw, many people you know, had that kind of response to Jesus, not of one where they thought he was an actual criminal, but saw he was a righteous and just man, a man who wasn't deserving of that. And many women, many women who followed Jesus from Galilee, ministered to him, ministering to him, were looking on from afar. Whereas earlier on in, in John's Gospel, John nineteen twenty five to twenty seven, they were closer by at the cross. In fact, let's just go to that just for a second here. Another interesting account that we hadn't read yet about what's going on at the cross. John nineteen, starting in verse twenty five. This is earlier on, when, or after he was first crucified. So now there stood by the cross. Of Jesus, his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and disciple whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. They said to the disciple, Behold your mother. From that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Uh, now, why would Jesus do that? To John's the disciple he's referring to here. Why, why would he say that John, why would he say to his mother Mary? Well, it's possible that none of his brothers at this point in time believed. And so his mother, to go, and it's obvious from the, all the gospel accounts that Joseph is nowhere to be found. So I'm going to assume that he's dead by that. Okay? Uh, because he was called a righteous and just man. I doubt he just left her or divorced her or whatever else. He probably had died by then. But we know from other accounts in Scripture that his, his brothers didn't believe him, his sisters didn't believe him. So for her to go back to their house, it would have been very difficult for her. So possibly that's why Jesus 
said to John the Apostle, this is your mother, and to his mother, this is your son. And he, he took, care of, took care of her from there on out until she died. Okay. So I see these women there, and, uh, you know, John was at least there at the beginning. But by the end, they were, they were far off. They weren't nearby the cross. So we're coming to we're coming close to an end here with Matthew's gospel. Probably uh, I don't know maybe two or three more teachings here, and then probably do a little review, and that'll be it. But uh, hopefully you can see as we we deal with all four gospels here, the chronology of what's going on, the prophecy being fulfilled, what is actually happening in its complete form, and everyone who's involved. And you know, hopefully the the point of historical narratives, I think, is to kind of put yourself in them. To kind of experience them for yourself almost firsthand. To kind of, you know, feel what they would have felt and experience what they would have experienced. And that's why you see details that we see of darkness and earthquakes and, and trembling and, and different things that people feel and say. And so hopefully you can kind of put yourself there. Okay, well that's, uh, that's it for today. We open up to, for questions, objections, or, or anything you want to add. So Sean? Yeah, I mean, they they had seen all those miracles of Jesus. What is one more going to do? And, and they proved they were lying here. If you go to Matthew 28 and verse 11, they proved they were liars because... Now, while they were going, behold, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all the things that had happened. When they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers, saying, Tell them his disciples came at night and stole him away while we slept. And so, so they, they proved they were liars. They didn't really mean what they said. If they meant what they said, they would have repented as soon as they heard that Christ rose from the grave. But they didn't repent. And so they proved they were liars. And, that, and that's really what atheists are, too. They're, they're pre-committed their philosophy and nothing's going to sway them from that except for maybe the Holy Spirit and them realizing they're a sinner deserving of hell and need of a savior uh, but uh, when they say something like that they're, I mean I've, I've heard atheist debates where they say well if this podium rose off the ground and went back down or floated in the air for a couple minutes and went back down I would believe that God existed no you'd probably say well somehow they attached some strings I can't see you know those invisible fishing line strings that I can't see and that's how they did it because of a pre-commitment to unrighteousness and that's what they were. They were pre-committed to unrighteousness. And that's what the atheists are. The atheists are atheists not because they have a lack of intellectual proof, but because they're suppressing the truth they do have in unrighteousness. Amen. I was just going to say that, that whenever they said that if you're really the son of God, come down off the cross, that's the exact same thing the atheists say. Is like you're, if God really does exist, then why doesn't he just strike me down dead? Right. Uh, just like you pointed out that uh, just because uh, Jesus didn't come off the cross doesn't mean he wasn't the Son of God. And just because they're not striking down dead at that particular time doesn't mean that God doesn't exist. So it's just a fallacious argument. In a sense, they're, they are acting as God by commanding God to strike them down. And by commanding, if, if he really is the Son of God, who are they to tell him what to do? Right. So, and even by saying that, they're showing their, their bias in believing that he's not the Son of God. They truly believed they wouldn't be saying that in the first place, and if they truly believed he possibly was the son of God, they couldn't order him around anyway. You know, so 
the whole conversation is really rhetorical there, if you ask me. But the whole wagging of heads thing, we see, we see that all the time. In the open. People walk by and they'll wag their heads. You know, wag their heads, shake their fingers. Mm-hmm. You know. But Sean? Uh, something we didn't, I mean, talked about, we didn't talk about, I guess, in depth. Uh, is there a prophecy? Uh, I think Tim's talked about it one time, uh, verse 51, Matthew 27, the veil being torn. Is that prophecy of God actually leaving the temple? Because I mean, now you have the, it's open completely, there's no, you know, hidden, because I don't know a lot about the sacrifice, but now it's open, you know, it's revealed. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know if that's a prophecy uh, that was fulfilled, but it's, I mean, I, and, and to be honest, I don't think there was even the Ark of the Covenant in there at that point in time. Uh, last Ark of the Covenant I was aware of was one that went away in the Babylonian captivity. They couldn't find it since then. It's all you watch videos about where it could possibly be. You know that it's down in Ethiopia somewhere, or that it's under the place where Christ was crucified and a drop of his blood went upon the mercy seat. You know, I've heard all kinds of different theories about it, but I don't know what they actually had in the Holy of Holies at that point in time. I don't know what they, I mean, maybe they made a new one, I have no idea. But I'm not aware of uh, any Ark of the Covenant after the original one. So, but as far as the, addressing your question, whether that's a prophecy, I, I'm not aware of any prophecy that that would happen. Well, I mean, this question is whether the spirit was ever the temple that's being talked about right now, whether the spirit was in there or not, because the spirit dwelt between the two angels uh, on the Ark of the Covenant, and uh, I don't know. Zacchaeus. Um, that's Zacchaeus, Zechariah, I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Whenever he went in there, and he was struck a mute, he mm-hmm. couldn't speak anymore until until he would uh, name him John. That's when he would get his, uh, his voice back. Isn't that kind of maybe implying that the Spirit of God would have been in the temple? Well, the Spirit of God definitely appear, appeared to him, that's for sure. Let's see. Mm. I'm not saying it's explicit, I'm saying it might be. Well, that was actually an angel that appeared to him, mm-hmm. with the Spirit of God. Yeah. There doesn't anything in there about the Ark of the Covenant either. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, as far as God dwelling in the temple, though, like in, in the normal sense of the Old Testament in the temple, where there's the Ark of the Covenant, He's dwelling above the mercy seat between the two cherubim. Uh, I don't know if that's going on right now in the New Testament, when the time we're talking about here. I don't know if that's going on or not. Yeah, the Old Testament. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember that happening. I can't remember all the details of it either. But either way, the the symbolic thing being being shown here by the and I'm sure. <laughs> imagine them trying to sew that back together. And that's that's just like a, a, a sinful human to try to cover up their own sin. Yeah, it was it was hand woven. I don't know how the scriptures will say how thick it was. 
uh, you can you can look in Exodus, and I think even in Leviticus talks about it a little bit, and talks about the design of it, uh, how there'd be pomegranates and stuff like that, and sewn into it, and so uh, I don't angels as well. Yep, and I don't. It doesn't say how thick it is. I tried to find that. Um, you might be able to find that from t- tradition and through history, yeah, but yeah, it was. Either way, it was uh, something that could not have been ripped by a man. But I, I, going back to the thought I was having, I can imagine them trying to sew it back up. Just, just like, just like a man trying to cover his own sin. I mean, you know, God did it. Let's, let's cover it up as quick as we can. Oh yeah, eighty seventy, less than forty years later. Right, and, and what good would it do to sew it up when God's not in there, even if He was before it? God's not God's not in that place. You know, He, he dwells in temple not made by hands now. That's the day of Pentecost, and so yeah. And imagine being the people who were actually performing the sacrifices in the temple at that point in time and seeing this happen with no hands being involved. From the top to the bottom, I mean, you'd want to either quit your job, repent, or not. You would have nothing to do with the sewing up, you know. But when when men try to cover up their sin or try to repair their sin their way instead of God's way, that's kind of like just like it is. It doesn't do any good. It does not change the facts. Yeah, I've heard uh, people theorize. I've, I've never been able to find it that the uh, reason why it was called place of the skull uh, was because that's where David supposedly buried the head of Goliath. I don't uh, know where they get that from. I don't know if they're just looking at Golgotha, Goliath, looks similar, huh. just doing that. But I have heard that theory. Because I haven't been able to find it. I looked in uh, 1 Samuel. Uh, I haven't been able to find it there. It just says he returned it to Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. And he kept it in his tent for a while, but it doesn't say what he actually did with it after that. Uh, but I have heard that yeah. theory, people saying that Goliath's head was actually built there, or not built there, but buried there, and then, then the cross there is kind of symbolic of Jesus crushing the head of the enemy, or the seed of the enemy. Hmm. Uh, so I've heard that theory, but I haven't been able to find it anywhere in Scripture, so I don't know where they're getting it from. Yeah, I also read that, that some believe it could possibly be where Adam's head was buried. Hmm. I don't know how they would know that. I mean, we're talking about flood leaving large layers on top of whatever that was there before, so... It's just a desperate plea trying to connect their original sin idea with the cross. Just, just, just beware that there are many times, and you need to be aware of this, your temptation for yourself, people try to take little things in Scripture and make them big things. Okay, like this whole being, these people being risen from the dead. Yeah, they try to make it into like a, a very important thing. You know, base like a whole ministry around it or something like that. That's just... It's ridiculous. It really is. So just be aware of you know, people taking these little ideas or you know, adding things to Scripture to try to make something of nothing. Right. Right. It's not a pardon. No, it's not a pardon. A debt being paid and a debt being pardoned are two different things. You look at the story in Matthew 18 of the guy who owed that king lots of money. Uh, when he was pardoned, someone else didn't come along and pay it for him. 
Because if that would have happened, he would not have been able to reinstall it and put him in jail. You know? So, obviously, like, like you said, it's, uh, being paid in full. There's no mercy in that. There's no grace in that. There's no forgiveness in that. Uh, the Greek word for forgiveness is a theomy, and it means to, uh, not count something against somebody any longer. So, it, in order to not count against them, it must still be there. If it's not there, it's been wiped out by someone paying it, then you, you can't count it against them anymore. It's impossible to count against them anymore. So. Have you have you ever seen the pictures of, of outside Jerusalem that that area that looks like looks like the skull? No, I haven't. You haven't seen them. Mm-hmm. You seen that? You, you, you look in you know Bible dictionaries and stuff. They'll have for Gol- uh, Golgotha. Mm-hmm. Um, they'll have this place of the skull outside of Jerusalem. And if you look at this area up on the hill there outside Jerusalem, the the rock face of, of it. It has it literally. You've seen it. It literally does look like a skull. Mm-hmm. Not for a skull like this. Two things like this. It has a frame. nose. It has a cracked out like nose kind of area. Mm-hmm. And, it's, and if you look at it, it's pretty interesting. I don't, I don't know if that would have any validity historically or not. But yeah, the the, yeah, the, the the traditional site where they say Calvary was would have actually been inside the city inside? at that point in time. During Jesus' day, that's that's what I understand anyway. So, um, a lot of times, traditional sites for these things really have no merit. Like, for example, the traditional site for Sinai, right. it's completely off. And so, a lot of times, it's just a, a place for people to make money for mostly Roman Catholic people to make money. They're usually the ones who make these sites, the traditional sites, and pick them. Now, I'm, I'm not saying that I, that couldn't be wrong that that was outside to say at that point in time. And I've, I have I have heard of something like that, but. Um, I've never seen a picture of it or anything like that. Yeah, I'm aware of. It's interesting. Hmm. And then uh, Mount Moriah, mm-hmm. that's right there also, mm-hmm. correct? I think so. That's, uh, that's from, you know, looking at that, is that where uh, Abraham offered Isaac? And he is the, and Jesus is the yeah. ram who was yeah. the replacement. That's right. Yeah. Um, that's another interesting. But I was wondering how that, how that uh, Mount Moriah, it might be another, you know, something to look at, we can look at separately. A parallel to it, yeah. Yeah. A shadow. It's that uh, Golgotha or Calvary there will be the same mm. place as Mount Moriah. That's interesting. Sounds right. I can't confirm that. Point. No, that sounds right. Yeah. But also the uh, the um, Calva, the Calvaria, huh? the Latin huh? means. Uh, Place Yep. Okay. Yep. So the Latin Calvary is the English transliteration. Latin word. Yep. Yep. Okay. And that was you were saying from they took that from Rome's Latin Vulgate. Right. It just was really popular. Right. Okay. Same with Lucifer. Okay. Lucifer is just a Latin word okay. that means. Uh, Son of the light or son of the morning. One of the, I can't remember exactly. Yeah. yeah. A lot of the, uh, not, a, not, a, not a proper name like mine is Kerrigan, yours is, is mm-hmm. Kevin, yours is Tracy. It, it, people will take Lucifer as a proper name, but it's just mm-hmm. a name that was given. It's a Latin word which means something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The main reason why the Latin words are still there is because of the King James Version Bible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
whenever they commissioned the King James Version Bible, I looked into it and King James commissioned that some of the Latin be preserved, some of the Greek be preserved, some of the Hebrew be preserved, and then English be put in. So he, he commanded that these things be preserved in the translation. Uh, and so they, the translators decided what they would preserve, but they were given orders to preserve certain certain languages in, in the translation. Because uh, I think King James is looking at popularity among all the religious people of the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, so all the Latin words that are still in there, like sin, sin is a Latin word, um, or Calvary, and there's, there's a few others that are Latin words. Okay. Those are in there because of the King James Bible. And they're still there because people are accustomed to them. And, yeah. yeah, I think people were used to it. I mean, back in those days, really not many people knew, knew Latin. They couldn't understand the Bible, and that's one reason they wanted to translate in English. Right. But that, but in, in not knowing Latin, they would know certain Latin words. It would be no to Calvary and Lucifer, like that. So they're familiar terms, so they kept them the way they were. Latin and Greek. Latin and Greek. Yep. Okay. Yep. So Latin was even at that time mm-hmm. uh, was being used. Yeah. Not as popular as it was later on, okay. but it was popular. I mean, the most popular language at that point in time for written was Koine Greek. For speaking in that area was Aramaic, which is basically almost exactly the same as Hebrew. Yeah. Almost exactly the same. That's that's interesting because that's what they, the Passion of Christ you, you, you speak in Aramaic mm-hmm. and not movie a lot. That's. Know, Yeah, it's accurate. Um, in fact, uh, I don't want to get too much into this, but um, when Jesus cried out, Eli, Eli, uh, Lama Sabachthani, that was in Hebrew, but in the, I think it's in John's Gospel, he does it in Aramaic. And so he, he must have cried it out both two times, once in Hebrew, once in Aramaic. I think maybe it's in Mark. Yeah, one says Eloi, Eloi, which is Aramaic. Where a lie, a lie is Hebrew. So. Aramaic comes from the Babylonian captivity, right? Oh, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. But they're very similar language. It's almost like, you could almost say Aramaic is like a slang of, of Hebrew. You could almost say that. The Assyrians, I think. Yeah, I thought it came from the Assyrian Chaldees mm-hmm. from the uh, Babylonian captivity. I think that's where the Aramaic right. comes from. That's why we have, we have brother. Uh, um, Sounds right. Sounds right. We have a brother, his name's Benson, a uh, good brother in the Lord. He's now a Bible translator for with Wycliffe. Okay. And uh, but he's a Syrian and he learned all these languages. Praise the Lord. Serving the Lord as a Bible translator. So. Yeah, that makes sense. That's why parts of Daniel are written Aramaic, probably. Yeah, from the captivity. Oh, okay. That's funny. Rush on. One objection. I still agree with your, your supposition. I don't know if it supports it. Maybe you think uh, Acts 8, uh, 59 says uh, Stephen saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. I controlled it, I think, in that sense. Okay. It's the same type of thing to Jesus. Right. Okay. 
Yeah, I thought about that, but I don't know if it's exactly the same thing being said there. Spirit in Jesus. You'll have to look at this some more. Thank you for bringing that up. Look at the beauty on there. All right, anybody else? The only thing that happened when he was crucified, when he gave up his spirit, was the graves being opened. And he, they, were, they were risen and appeared to many after he was risen from the grave. Yeah, cause if, you, if you read it just as it is here, it may, it may seem to say that the graves were opened and the bodies of the saints were raised, and they didn't come out until he was risen. It, it kind of seems like it would imply that in English there. <clears throat> Isn't that something that the, the veil is torn? That's open, and then the grave's open. Yep. And there's resurrection, now there's new life through after the, the death. And the, the veil is torn, so the, may, the way is made. And the tomb's open uh, at that time. So, Okay, anybody else? 